Hello and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today on The State of Shakespeare, we're joined by Brian Vaughn. Hello, Brian. Hello. Hello, gents. How are you? Brian Vaughn has been the artistic director of the Utah Shakespeare Festival since May of 2010. He has acted in numerous roles during his 22 festival seasons, including Hamlet, Henry V, and Cyrano de Bergerac. The 2017 season at Utah Shakes is now underway, and for reasons that we'll soon get into, this is a particularly exciting time at Utah Shakes, and Brian is here to tell us all about it. Welcome, Brian. Hello, thank you. Glad to be here. As we mentioned, this is a really exciting time to be in Cedar City, Utah, which I have to say is located among some of the most beautiful natural scenery in the world. Yeah. It is, yeah. We're, we're sandwiched between many beautiful national parks, uh, Zion National Park and Cedar Breaks and Bryce Canyon. And the Utah Shakespeare Festival is one of the Shakespearean meccas in the United States. What makes it so special? Wow. Uh, where to begin? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's this Shakespeare Festival. We've been going for about 56 years much in the vein of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which was the inspiration for our founder, Fred C. Adams. The theater was started basically with a thousand dollars and a dream of bringing Shakespeare to southern Utah. And, you know, Fred had a vision to bring some entertainment to this community, uh, knowing that it was a, a stop off for a lot of the railroads at the time and um, really sandwiched between these national parks. And he thought, you know, well, what better thing to do than to bring Shakespeare to the masses? And we've been going for 56 years. We have an audience base of roughly 120,000 people every year. Uh, we produce eight to nine shows per season across three stages. And Shakespeare is our touchstone. And that's, you know, we, we feel very fortunate to be doing what we're doing. Well, what's amazing is that in a time where theater is under attack, which we may get to later, the Utah Shakespeare Festival keeps expanding. What's going on there now in terms of its expansion? It has. Well, last season, we completed a $40 million campaign to expand our facilities, which part of that was a new Elizabethan theater, which is an outdoor open air replica of the globe, essentially, with the Elizabethan tiring house and a casement doors and slipstage and upper balcony and all of that. It seats about 900 and a new costume shop, a new administration wing and a new art museum, which is located just adjacent to our theater, as well as a flexible 200 seat black box for us to to do more experimental work, as well as different variations of Shakespeare. And it's also the home to our new play program called Words Cubed, where we do a reading every season. And then the following season, we will produce one of those plays from the season. So it was a, a sort of a long time dream of our founder. Part of the vision behind this expansion was to try to unify the space on two blocks and corral it into this venue, this center for the arts, where our patrons could basically stay on site and not have to deal with any traffic and continue to immerse themselves in the work. Those two theaters are also joined with our third theater, which is the Randall L. Jones, which is sort of a modified proscenium where a lot of our contemporary or, or classic you know, musicals are done in that venue also. So to have these sort of three theaters centered in this beautiful grassy area next to this art museum was a great venture. And um, 
you know, a, a monumental task in the time of fundraising um, for the arts and a, and a big achievement. So we're going into our second year now under the Beverly Taylor Sorensen Center for the Arts, which is the name of the, the center. And um, it's been quite quite positive and rewarding. Well, I'm interested in digging into that a, a, a little bit deeper. You, you have these brand new spaces and you've got ideas and visions for how to utilize them. And then once you get into this space, you make all sorts of discoveries and, and you uncover certain challenges. What discoveries have you made about the new space? One of the things that we're dealing with is we're closer to a road where that is a main thoroughfare. So hearing you know traffic during a production of Henry V isn't sometimes the most ideal thing. Being from New York, I know nothing about traffic noise. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that bad, but it's enough to sort of pull your ear. So we're dealing with methods to keep the sound in and some of the exterior sound out, obviously. As well as we have a gigantic sun flare that hits the stage around 8 o'clock. Sort of a natural lighting <laughs> that's beginning to happen. <laughs> Dangerous for fights, I imagine. Yeah, and that's exactly kind of a, a Stonehenge um, effect or something. Yeah, <laughs> well, that, <laughs> I know, and it's only a fifteen-minute experience. So we have put up some shading to to cover the the sun flare. And there have been little things like that that have have happened, and as soon as the trees around the building mature over the next couple of years, you know, these will be non-issues, but they're the little things that add up, you know. I think when you when you do a 40 million campaign, that's a whole lot of money, but I imagine that people come in with $80 million worth of artistic vision and that certain compromises have to be made along the way. <laughs> that is exactly the case. <laughs> Definitely. We can do this, we can do this, and it's a constant reminder that we are an Elizabethan tiring house and that, you know, Sometimes less is more. Yeah. But you could hardly ask for a, a more beautiful setting. I'm interested in Words Cubed. Do you have a Words Cubed play in your season right now? We do. In fact, Words Cubed is basically the second phase of a new play program that we've begun a couple of seasons back. And we have just put a little bit more focus on it to make it more of an incubator for new plays and really um, taking the time to commit to new works, give them a reading, give them a workshop, have discussion, and then to produce them within our, our season. This 200-seat flexible black box has given us you know, an opportunity to do those plays that may be a little bit more challenging because you know the risk is not as great. And this season is just one of those ventures. We're, we're kicking off the first play that opened our reading series last season was a new play, world premiere play by Neil LeBute called How to Fight Loneliness. And um, we are producing it this season within our Eileen and Alan Ames Studio Theater. And this will be the world premiere production of that LeBute play, which is a pretty big deal for us. I mean, obviously, Neil LeBute is a very recognizable playwright and has a significant impact on American theater. And to know that we have a premiere of one of his plays is a true gift for us. Well, and it speaks to the Utah Shakespeare Festival and, and what it has to offer as well. Yeah, I think so. You know, obviously the material is more challenging to some of our, our usual sort of summer fare. However, the play is very rich in its subject matter and it's very timely and very moving play that is both humorous as well 
was gut-wrenchingly emotional by the end of it. So yeah, we're, we're excited about doing it. And Neil has been very gracious to be here. He was part of the reading series last year and, and will be in residence with us this season when we begin rehearsals in early August. And it opens at the tail end of our summer season and plays through our fall. And then next season, we have a new play this season that we're premiering with the workshop that we will be producing next season, which is a three-person musical about Pearl Bailey called Pearls in the House. So it's an exciting program and I think is one that is important to our programming to not only produce classical theater at a top-notch level, but also usher in new playwrights and new voices. It seems to be a bit of a trend going on amongst Shakespeare festivals. You have the Oregon doing what they're doing and you guys with Words Cubed. So Shakespeare festivals are expanding beyond just Shakespeare and classical to be incubators of new work, which is fantastic. Yeah, you know, we are a destination theater. So when people come, they're they're usually seeing you know, two or three shows during their stay. And so a lot of our programming is based around balance and giving them a wide array of material. You know, that you can see a, a classic musical like Guys and Dolls in the afternoon, and then you can see one of the greatest tragedies ever written, Romeo and Juliet in the evening. And then maybe the next afternoon, see a new play by Neil Butte is all specific to what we're, we're trying to do here, to give people a wide assortment of, of material and the conversation that happens between those plays. Another unique part of our programming is that we have seminars and pre-show discussions as well as post-show discussions after each play. Every morning at 9 a.m. in our seminar grove, the audience from the afternoon and evening before, they get to discuss the plays with the literary director and they get to ask questions and really immerse themselves into what these plays are, how they relate to us now, and really any type of conversation point that that the plays might center on. It's kind of unique to the ticket, really. Not only do you just get to see the play, but you get to have some other incentives that go alongside it. And drill down into it a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I feel like in many ways, that's really the point of what we're doing here, how these plays reflect who we are now and what we can learn from them, really. And especially with Shakespeare, I have always found that having worked on his plays for over 20 some odd years, they're always relevant. They're always pertinent and immediate to what's happening in our world. And it's great to see them in many different variations and incarnations and in different venues. And I love hearing people talk about them. Yeah, well, that's a good segue to the outcry that's been happening around Shakespeare these days, particularly the public theater's Julius Caesar. Yeah. Given all that's been happening with Shakespeare and Company has been getting threats, I guess. Do you think that helps or hurts the future of Shakespeare festivals around the country? Gosh, I don't know. I I don't necessarily know if the vitriol helps, but I would think that it is continually bringing him to the forefront of our social conversation, which I think is, is important and good. Because I think no matter what time period we're doing them in, how we're producing them, they will have some sort of relevance to us. And I fully support the public's endeavor for free speech and interpretation to make that, you know, how they would like to interpret those plays. I think the the more dissatisfying thing about the entire issue is the misunderstanding of what the play is really saying. Yes. yes. Which, uh, which is sort of something that I think is happening in our world right now, that people are quick to respond to something without having the complete story behind them. They need a seminar in Seminar Grove. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
you know, I, I, whether to at, you know answer the question if it helps or, or hurts, I'm not exactly sure. But I know that nothing like controversy helps the theater community more in rallying behind because I think it's a, a pledge that we have as artists and, and that's part of our mission in life, I think, is to present these plays in ways where it's going to instill conversation and thought. That's the whole part of being an artist. So I hope it hasn't hurt those those institutions. You know, the other part of that that I think is interesting is we live in a five second sort of world where one piece of news is is today's big drama and the next is something completely different. Right. So I hope I hope it's a blip on the radar and you know, as far as any sort of controversial idea. Yeah, I mean I think the interesting thing about it is is the fact that the conversation is not happening. It's just vitriol. Yeah. And uh, I think any artist whether it's the public theater or the Utah Shakes or Neil LaBute seeks to stimulate conversation. Exactly. I mean, that, you know, we, we have certainly produced plays where we have received letters or, or people dissatisfied with what they have viewed or, or seen. And more often than not, when you say, well, here is what we were endeavoring to do by saying that, or what was it that made you feel that way? Or did you think about this part of the play? More often than not, once you begin to have that conversation, there is an enlightened sense of being that starts to happen where people start to see both sides of the coin. And I do think that that is vital and important because we're all in this together here, you know? <laughs> and I don't think it's any theater's mission to put something out there to say, oh, we're going to make this statement, you know? I don't think. There, there may be those, but an institution of that size, I don't think that that would be the case. I think it's about the conversation, about looking at something through a new lens or a different lens and seeing where we come out. Yeah. And let's face it, I mean, that play will always be political, obviously, and will always be relevant to both sides. And that's what is, is fascinating about the play. And that there's great ironies surrounding the controversy, which is exactly what Shakespeare, I think, was intending. I think he's smiling right now, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So before we close, we've got one more question, and I, and I think I should preface this by telling a pretty embarrassing story. <laughs> so this was maybe 20 years ago, so before your time as artistic director, but when I was fresh out of graduate school, I remember very distinctly that I auditioned for the Utah Shakespeare Festival. And I went into the room, and it was one of those auditions, you know, when you, where you just feel like you nailed it. I mean, I was feeling pretty good. And on my way out of the room, I can't remember what I said exactly, but it was along the lines of, see you soon. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, never heard anything again, quite rightfully so. But given that our podcast is geared toward actors, what do you look for in a Shakespearean actor? Uh, Yeah, that's a great question. You can come audition for me if you like and may. You can try try it again and see how it goes. Um, That's a great question. You know, we we are hiring a company of actors that have to have to sort of dance between many different styles of theater also. You know, the the very interesting thing I think is we, we always ask for a Shakespeare monologue in verse that is part of our, our mandate of, of material that has to be seen. Then you, uh, we ask for a contrasting contemporary piece and then a song if you sing, which really is a simple sort of measure here. We have one piece that's gonna show off your verse skills and how you handle the language and then contrasting material around that as well as showing your vocal range if, if you're a singer because we do musicals and so forth. 
But more often than not, you can tell within the first 30 seconds if someone has the ability to live inside of this verse. And by that, I mean about paying attention to the, the meter or the, the sense or the long thought, parenthetical phrase, end of phrasing, you know, connecting the, the ideas in what Shakespeare is writing. All of that you can usually find in the first 30 seconds. And then after the sort a sort of general audition, more often than not, we'll ask them for, you know, we will ask for sides or we might email them and say, hey, can you put this material on tape that might be role specific? But it's not a whole lot of material. And more often than not, we can also get a sense of, of the person in the first few moments of just being in the room. And that's really a vital moment in that audition because... When these actors, they have to come here to Cedar City, which is not New York City, not Chicago, not L.A. They are leaving their home. They're coming to a small community. They're in two to three plays at any time. Building a Shakespeare play, a musical, over the course of seven weeks, eight-hour days, every single day. Diving into tech, 10 out of 12s, in 90-degree weather in the afternoon. We're looking for people who have a good sense of being you know, that are going to work well with others, that are going to be positive, maintain a sense of humor, as well as a commitment to what these plays are, both in their size and scale and the subject matter. The most common mistake that I find is that a lot of actors will do, they'll do less than they need to do. You know, that's another thing is we're, we all, we're looking for actors who can also fill these theaters. We have a 900-seat outdoor theater, which is quite different than speaking a soliloquy for a camera. You know, yes. uh, you're going to have to fill the space and, and reach the back row. So when you say less, just to clarify, when you say they do less than they, they need to do, is that just vocally or is it the physical embodiment of what they're doing as well? It's mostly vocally. And, you know, that, that can happen when you're in an audition room. It's, you know, sometimes it's just you and the other person sometimes. And, you know, sometimes they're speaking or performing the monologue in a, in a way that might not be filling even that room. So we'll have to sometimes say, okay, go to the back of, of the room there and kind of open this up vocally and really mentally, I think, in some ways, which will open up its its size. Not to say that these need to be big actors by any stretch of the imagination. It's just a matter of putting more focus on what you're saying and where those stresses may lie to fill any type of venue. But first and foremost, it's about language skills and variety of emotional commitment. And then just if they're good people, you know, <laughs> we get a, a sense of good, positive people. You know, we, we see thousands of people. We travel to New York, Chicago, L.A. We go to a lot of graduate programs where they're focused on, cla on classical material. And then we have to whittle that down to about 60 actors every single year that are, you know, dancing between many different styles of, of play. So it's kind of a tricky thing. And more often than not, when we don't hire someone, it's not because they're bad. It just might not be the right year for them. There you go, Garrett. But it's actually one of my favorite parts of the job is seeing actors at work and especially working on Shakespeare. You know, and there's nothing more enlightening than working on these plays. And I love that at all various levels of, of experience. Yeah. 
Do you have an intern company or an apprentice company? We do. We have a, you know, we're about a third professional and the rest two thirds non-equity. We also have a fellowship program that is in conjunction with the university here at Southern Utah University, which, so part of that theater arts program is a, an internship program where they get to work and be inside the plays and have some experimental learning. And that that's usually about five interns there or fellows that we call them. And then the rest are non on equity as well as equity performers. That's a lot of actors out there. It's a great and thriving network. I know we've interviewed so many actors who have had some experience at Utah Shakes. And There are and a lot of actors out there. Brian Vaughn, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. No problem. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks so much, Brian. All right. Appreciate it very much. Thanks. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.